If you guys have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up <clears throat> Revelation chapter 14. We're going to finish out chapter 14 uh, this evening as we, uh, as we take a look at what the Lord has for us. And as we <clears throat> discussed last time, this chapter breaks down into three parts. We're in the third part of that, and it breaks down <clears throat> basically by three visions, or three beholds. I saw, I saw, I saw. So we find ourselves in that third part of that tonight. In Revelation chapter 14, beginning at verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest from the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, Lord, I pray, God, that you would uh, just give us eyes to see. Lord, I think all of us, we need to challenge our, uh, our our ideals, our traditions, the views we hold to see. Is the text actually saying what we think the text is saying? Lord, I pray that we would be uh, men and women honest with what the Bible says. What's the Bible telling us? And that we only go as far as it lays out for us. And some things we can know and some things we can wonder. But Lord, we can be okay with that. We pray that your word would guide us and lead us that your spirit would be with us, even as we sang, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would bring to our remembrance, open our eyes, open our ears, and open our heart to receive the word that you have for us tonight, Lord. Be glorified in this place as we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So this third section of Revelation chapter 14 is dealing with the harvest of the earth. The harvest of the earth is what we read about, what's taking place. And the first thing we want to talk about is, who is the one sitting on the cloud? And there's a few things about that and about this text that make that a little bit difficult to nail down. Most people will just say, well, obviously it's Jesus. And other people will say, well, obviously it's an angel. And neither one of those two sides, those two folks, are very able to hear each other. The, the, there's some difficulties both ways. If it's Christ, who is sitting on the cloud, holding the sickle, he is being commanded by an angel to reap the earth. And which just seems a little bit odd, that an angel would be telling him to, to reap the earth. If it's an angel, well, he's called one like the Son of Man, which is a very clear title of the Christ. So you have some issues when we look at the text. And one of the important things, when we, especially when we study Revelation, guys that we recognize in the book of Revelation that we need to have space in our interpretation. You guys understand what I mean? 
So we don't want to be so rigid on what we, are, that what we think the text says that we lose the ability for there to be other options or other ideas. That we want to recognize that one of the natures or part of the nature of, a, of apocalyptic literature is that it is filled with signs and, and sometimes there's a lot of difficulty in being able to nail it all down. So we're going to try to do that tonight. That's our goal, obviously, to nail those things down. And I'll tell you where I'm at, but you are welcome to land anywhere <laughs> on the page that you want. The important thing, though, when we are dealing with this, is that we're, we're being honest with the text. Does that make sense? So we're not trying, I'm not trying to take a view of mine and squeeze it into something that the Bible says, but rather I take what the Bible says and that's where my view comes from. Okay, so that's, that's our goal as we look at it. So let's talk about the one who sits on the cloud. Verse 14 says, I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So there's several things that describe this person. And, and really as a result of, of even more than one of them, I see this as a picture of, uh, of Jesus Christ, that he is the one like the Son of Man. Look at the personality of him, the personhood. In Revelation 1.13, we have the same phrasing. Look at it. Revelation 1.13 says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Now, do we know who that one is? Revelation chapter 1 begins with, This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> so we don't have a struggle with that. Same exact words, right? One like the Son of Man. You will never find that phrase used of an angel that I am aware of in Scripture anywhere. That is a, a phrase that is very specifically not only being one of Jesus' favorite things to be known as the Son of Man, but a very specific title for Messiah the, being the Son of Man. In John 1.14, what does it tell us? It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have Yahweh becoming flesh, the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The, the, the thing, one of the things that we want to understand theologically when we come to the Word of God, there are often places in Scripture where mankind sees God. Yes? But the Scripture also tells us that nobody can see God. So how does that work? Well, it works like this. The Scripture says that, the, the, that God who is visible is God the Son. So in the Old Testament, when Moses is standing in front of a burning bush, Jesus even goes so far in the Gospel of John to say that's his voice from the burning bush. You have the example of Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus points to that picture as well. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. You guys familiar with the scripture? And Jesus says, this is Isaiah speaking of me. Because you have Isaiah having a, a physical vision of God in the flesh. And so that's why Son of Man is a, is a very common term for this idea of God in the flesh, which is God the Son. Jesus Christ. When we, when we look at it, if we want to kind of wrap our minds around that, let's look at John 5.27. In, in, yeah, John 5.27 says, and he, he has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. 
God the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. Why? Because He's the Son of Man. Because He is God in the flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In a moment, we'll, we'll take a look at Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 is where we get the title, the Son of Man, from. When the Son of Man comes and stands before the Ancient of Days. It should be a, a text we're familiar with. So this concept, being like the Son of Man, really seems to point to Jesus Christ. But the other thing is this white cloud. Now there's a lot of ways we can look at the white cloud. Um, you know, we probably all have different pictures in our mind. I want to mess with the picture that's in your mind a little bit. The word white can also be translated bright. Like he's coming on a bright cloud. When we think about Jesus in the transfiguration, on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? He's standing on top of the mountain. He's got Peter, James, and John. They're up there with him, yeah? And Jesus is transfigured before him. The veil of his flesh parts, and they're able to see the glory, his glory. And it says that he shines like the sun in its brilliance, right? This, the glory. And that, that word for glory in Hebrew, that particular word for glory is the word Shekinah. Shekinah is a, is a word that speaks of the brightness. Now what happens when you see the brightness of God? Usually the next thing that happens is you bow your head and close your eyes. Why? Because super bright. You can't take, you can't see that brilliance. There's another word for glory in, in the Old Testament. It's the word kabod. Kabod means the weight. And the kabod, the word kabod is used. Remember when the priests are in the temple and the presence of God comes into the temple and that presence of God literally drives the priests out? The weightiness of God enters into the place. And, and so you have this idea, the brilliance, the brightness of God causes man to close his eyes. The weight or the heaviness of God causes man to bow the knee on the face before the Lord God. So all of these are expressions of, of that reality. So in this white cloud, we see this. Now in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark thirteen twenty six, Mark told us that this is how the Son of Man was going to come. Look at it. It says, and, and, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. How? Great power and glory. Coming in the clouds. This, this description. So here we see a description. Son of Man coming in the clouds. We see that phrase over and over again. If we compare it, in a couple of chapters we're going to be introduced to another person who is riding something. It's a woman who rides a beast. Right? And it, and it says she is seated on something. Now, not, she's not sitting on the beast. Look, listen to what it says. Revelation 17.1 Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now, we don't have to decide what many waters means because in a couple of verses, in verse 15 of chapter 17, it says, The angel said, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So you have the, the woman riding the beast who is coming over the waters. Very, a very earthly tone, right? The earth dwellers is a common phrase when we go through the book of Revelation. But then you have the Christ, the, the, the Son of Man. He's coming on the clouds. A very heavenly tone, right? A very, a very spiritual tone. So being above or, or, or over top. Just by way of comparison. I said we were going to share from Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, you have a, a vision that Daniel has of the ancient of days. And I always like to see this as the ascension. But we don't get to see this part of the ascension. 
we're used to the other part where Jesus goes up and the angels say to the men, what are you doing still standing here? You guys know where I'm, what I'm talking about? But from the heavenly view, I think Daniel gets a little view of that and he writes about it in Daniel chapter 7. It says in Daniel seven thirteen, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's that phrase again. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages would serve him. His dominion is everlasting, uh, an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man that comes up before the Ancient of Days, you have the Son coming before the Father in victory, and God saying, sit at my throne, right, until... I make your enemies uh, your footstool, which is Psalm 110. So, so it, it's a kind of a neat view, I think, of what's going on. But again, the title, Son of Man, again, the picture riding on the clouds. Making sense a little bit? The, the, the signs ought to stay the same. Okay? Most of the time we come to the Scripture, we don't expect signs to change. If the red dragon is the devil, then every time we see a red dragon, it's a devil right we don't switch it and all of a sudden make it uh, something else so same way with with these concepts revelation 1 7 says this behold he jesus christ is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen well we already discussed revelation chapter one is not hard to figure out right because verse one says this is the revealing the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus the Christ. And then the rest is descriptive of Him. So, who is this coming on the clouds, this Son of Man? This is, uh, again, I think, a picture of Christ. Now, it's interesting because we also see something of His power. It says He has a golden crown. You guys see where that's at, right? He's wearing a golden crown. Now, it's interesting. I expected the golden crown to be a diadem. That's the kind of crown a king wears. But it's not. It's a Stephanos. A Stephanos is the victor's crown. It is, it is the, the crown of victory when the battle is over and you are victorious. Like when, when athletes won their contest that they were competing in in the Olympics, they used to put the Stephanos on them, the, the wreath around the head. But it was a living wreath. It wasn't, it wasn't golden. In this case, it's golden. So the gold definitely speaks of something more than than just an athlete competing, but the idea of victor is what we want to gain. What is it that Jesus is doing as He sits on this cloud, as He holds the sharp sickle, He is the ultimately victorious, and what we're going to see in a few verses is the day of judgment has come. Remember Jesus told a story? He said there was a man who went out and sowed seeds. You guys remember the story? And the devil went out later and sowed tares. Remember what Jesus said? The disciples said, well, what are you going to do? Should we, should we pull up the tares? No, don't pull up the tares, because if you do, you'll do what? You'll pull up the wheat too. What did he say? Wait until the harvest. And when the harvest comes, the angels are going are to take care of that. The angels will take care of that, that judgment ultimately that's taken place. So I think you have the victorious Christ no longer... I was talking with Carol earlier today. We were talking about just the concept of Jesus. Zechariah 9.9 said, Here's your king coming to you lowly, riding on a donkey. 
I mean, if you go through history, there's not very many times that a victorious king who just had battle and, and, and is coming in triumph would ride a donkey. It just wouldn't happen. Go ahead, open, crack open your history books. They, they, they want a parade. They want the biggest horse they got. They want the, the most, uh, whatever they conquered, being trailing behind them, right? This sign of how great I am. But that's not how Christ came. Christ came submitted. Christ came meek, gentle, lowly. Here's your king coming to you, but he's riding on a donkey. This picture of humility. Why? Why? What did Christ come to do? Look, in, his, in the first coming, Jesus did not come to be crowned king. Right? He came to die. He had a purpose. His purpose was to die. That was going to happen. That was not, not going to happen. There wasn't a chance somehow that, well, the, everyone received him as, as their king, and now he's not going to die on the cross. He came to die. To bring salvation to mankind. But the scripture says, when he returns, how does he return? On a white horse. The first time he comes as our humble king. The second time as a victorious king. The first time offering salvation. The second time, judgment. That's the picture. The first time salvation. The second time, judgment. When he, when he comes, when, when Christ comes with the sickle, if you will, onto the battlefield, it's too late. Uh, that moment to say, oh, wait, I changed my mind. I don't want to be in this, on this side. I want to be on that side. Too late. Judgment has come. And that's what the picture is showing us. Christ, the King, victorious, riding on the glory, right? The, the cloud riding on, on that glory. And He has a purpose, and that purpose is to judge. That's what we see by the sharp sickle. It said, before... Uh, in Psalm 96.13 it says, Before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. So, at this point, Jesus is coming to judge. His judgment has come. You're going to see that at the end, right? You guys are all familiar with the verse that talks about blood flowing at, to the horse's bridle. That's deep, right? And everybody knows how far 1,600 furlongs is? 182 miles. So, which is roughly the distance from Basra to Megiddo. Which we'll, we'll discuss the importance of that in just a minute. So, I want you to understand, Revelation chapter 14, we've had all the warnings. The trumpets are over. The final trumpet blows from now until the end of the tribulation period. Now that the ultimate judgment is, is coming... Everything that was a warning previously, a call ultimately to mankind to repent, to turn, uh, those things are ending and the, and the reaping of the earth is taking place. The reaping of the earth is taking place. So, this sharp sickle, we talked about Matthew chapter 13. If you flip there, Matthew 13, 37, <clears throat> he answered and said, The one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Now what's his emphasis on? So a lot of times we want to look at it and make the emphasis salvation. That's not the emphasis. What's the emphasis on? Burning the weeds. It's judgment. 
It's judgment. When we look at these two harvests, I think both of these harvests are, are picturing judgment. I know other people disagree, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the idea here is clearly judgment. It's the end of the age, end of time. The final judgment, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. What's the emphasis? The ones who are, are, are evil will be, will be dealt with. Their judgment will come. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all that causes sin and all lawbreakers. Who are they gathering? Are they gathering the saints? What did it just say? It says they're gathering the lawbreakers, all that causes sin, and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, after that judgment is over, it says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So what's the picture of the harvest? Now sometimes when Jesus speaks of harvest, He is talking about people who are ready to hear about the gospel, right? When Jesus is in uh, um, Samaria, He talks to the woman at the well. You guys all remember the story? And he tells his disciples, pray that the Lord would send workers to the field. But who is he talking about? Is he talking about angels reaping a harvest? Or is he talking about men sharing the gospel and people getting saved? Okay, so when he talks about men reaping a harvest, he's talking about the gospel going forth, people getting saved and entering into the kingdom of God. When he talks about angels, he's talking about judgment. When the angel flew over Egypt... In the tenth plague, what did he come to do? Save or kill? Right? The firstborn of every family that didn't have blood on the house. Yes? So remember, as we talk about these things, they stay consistent in Scripture. Scripture stays consistent. So we want to allow the Scripture to say what it's saying. So we have here two harvests. One of a picture of Christ... I think, announcing it's, it's time for the harvest, symbolized by Him reaping, but we don't ever see any, there's nothing, no description of that. And then immediately it goes to an angel coming in the grapes of wrath, right? So, so we see that immediately afterwards. So I just want you to see that what we have pictured in chapter 14 is judgment. This is judgment. This is God judging the world. Now, let's look at that sickle a little bit. Let's read down in verse 15. It says, another angel came out of the temple. Now, let me, I don't want to run over this. The word another is the word alos. It means another of the same kind. And it's referring back to the last time the word angel was used. If you'll notice, the one sitting on the cloud, the one sitting on the cloud, when we looked at at, uh, verse 14, I looked on a white cloud and seated on a cloud, one like the Son of Man. Did it call him an angel? So we go back to the last time. When we see the word alos or heteros, there are two words for another in the Greek. Alos means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. Right? So if it uses the word anglos, angel, we go back to the last angel. This is another angel like the last angel which was mentioned, which I think is around verse 6 or 7 where we saw the last angel. So this is another angel like that. He comes, he appears. Now he has a sickle with him. Uh, in verse 15, and he says, Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So this angel is announcing. He is announcing 
something from the temple. Now what I want you to understand when it says an angel comes from the temple, that's not some random spot, you know, it's not like the angel came walking out of church. You know what is in the middle of the temple? Yeah, the throne of God. So when you see something coming out of the temple, or you see an angel coming from the altar, those are all very specific terms. And those always refer back to that which is in the presence of God, the presence of the Father. So the the Father, through this angel, is announcing to His Son, It's time! It's time. For the harvest to begin. And that is exactly what the Son is going to do. The hour to reap has come. The word for the hour, every time it is mentioned in Scripture, it is used in reference to judgment. Every time it's used, it's a reference to judgment. Save us from the hour that is to come. Well, what is the hour that is to come? The tribulation. The, the period of time in which God's wrath is poured out on the world. The, every time that phrase is used, it's used in connotation with judgment. With God's judgment coming. So, you're welcome to check it out. It's not hard to check out. Uh, do a little word search and you'll find that, that those things are true. That this is a sign. The, the time to reap has come. The time to reap, the hour is come. That phrase always referring to judgment. So what's the reason? Well, let's look at the idea, the condition of the harvest. What is the condition of the harvest? Why is he told to reap? Because it is what? Yeah, he says it's fully ripe, right? Fully ripe. Every once in a while, there's a time in our studies where it's helpful to be able to get a little deeper into the Word. Because you and I see ripe, we can see ripe a lot of ways, right? You can eat it, or maybe it's, we think, well, it's just perfect. But in Greek, Greek's a lot more colorful. In Greek, we can translate exact thought. So the thought in the Greek is, it is withered. In fact, the exact same word as this word here is used in Mark 11.20. It says, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered. Same word. Same word. Pass ripe. It's, it's, it's the concept of it being fully ripe. Is this idea that it's past the time when harvest should have come. And, and now it is, uh, it is you know, almost not good anymore. In John 15, 6, you see the same thing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Same word. Beyond right. In each of those cases, that word is used in what connotation? Judgment. What happened to the fig tree? What did Jesus do to the fig tree? He cursed it, right? What is Jesus saying about these branches that the Father cuts off? John 15. The Father prunes. Remember the pruning of the Father? And he's saying if these branches are... If a branch is not attached to him anymore, what does it do? Withers. It's not good for anything. It's not good for anything. The idea still carries that connotation of judgment. So we see we have a dry and withered harvest. That it's, it's time. God has announced it's time. The sun 
is going to pass his sickle through. The first harvest, the first picture, the first illustration is probably wheat that they're, that they're talking about. It says in James 5, 3 and 4, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Same kind of a connotation. What God's talking about is, look, all those things, all your gold and silver are corroded. There's no fruit here in James. This is what he's, what he's talking about. And, and he's talking as a prelude to judgment. Revelation 6.17 says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. You can, you can argue a lot of different things with me, but you can't tell me when wrath starts. Revelation 6.17 says, Wrath started then. So, by the way, that was eight chapters ago. <laughs> That's a long time. A lot of things have happened since then, right? Seven seals, seven trumpets, still seven bowls to come. But Scripture says, who can hide from the wrath? God's judgment is being poured out. Revelation 10.6 said, and, swear, uh, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, no more time. What does that mean? Revelation 10.6, what is the angel standing on the earth proclaiming? He is proclaiming times up. Judgment has come. This is what's being signified by the harvest. And by the way, it's why we, we have a, a rather horrific sign at the end of it about how deep the blood is, right? That's, that sounds like judgment language. So, Judgment is taking place. Hebrews 9.27 says this, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that the judgment. What is the writer of Hebrews telling us? He is saying that our judgment is as sure as death. Death is pretty sure, right? Well, the best you can do is come up with two guys who haven't died. Well, and all of us in this room. But unless we're like Enoch or Elijah, our number will come, Right? So as sure as death is, what's the next part? Judgment. As sure as death is, judgment is as sure as death. Everyone's going to stand before God. Everyone will face the judgment of God. And so I just want us to see the picture of what we're looking at here, what we're seeing in this harvest. The condition of the harvest is judgment, not reaping, bringing in the folds, These are not people getting saved. It's not mankind taking the gospel into the fields and people getting saved. This is angels bringing the harvest that Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 13. Judgment upon upon the world. Now what is its connection to prophecy? Let's look at that for a second. Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, pick it up about verse 12. It says, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, have any of you guys been to Israel? Many people been to Israel? A few, I know. So when, you remember crossing the Kidron Valley? Has anybody ever gone across the Kidron? So you have Mount of Olives. That's back walls in Mount of Olives. And back there, the sound booth is the Temple Mount. Okay, you guys with me? So if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you can look down to the Temple Mount. This in-between area is Kidron. 
This is the Valley Kidron in here. Now, Israel's a mountain, so there's valleys all the way around it, right? So, the next valley around the bend is called Gehenna. You guys have heard of that before, right? That's the Valley of Gehenna. There's a space between Kidron and Gehenna that they call the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The reason they call it the Valley of Jehoshaphat is because that's where the Jewish people believe the judgment of the nations is going to take place. This is what Joel's talking about here in chapter 3. Look at it. Stir them up. Tell them to come to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So it's a judgment from God. Listen to how he describes it. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Now we'll see how this ties in, hopefully in just a minute. But what you have is Old Testament prophecy describing the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations is something that happens after the the battle of Armageddon. Before the kingdom, after the battle of Armageddon, remember Jesus told a story about it. He said... He said, they're going to divide the sheep from the goats. Matthew 25. You with me? He said, remember he, he, we, the, the, some of the verses we love to hear, right? When I was hungry, you... When I was naked, you... When I was in jail, you... Right? So we, and, and inasmuch as you did this unto the least of these, my brethren... What's Jesus say? You did it unto me. And that's the division, right? The ones who did go, the ones who did not... They're separated. There's a separation. That's a description of the judgment of the nations what he's describing here in joel chapter 3 is the judgment of the nations in the valley of decision it's too late to make the decision he said now the, the decision's made the division is happening the judgment is taking place mankind is coming before god now in the valley of decision remember in verse 13 he said put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe go in and tread the wine press it's full the vats overflow For their evil is great. Now I also want you to understand this idea, this picture of harvest equaling God's judgment is not new. Jeremiah chapter 51. You have this word from God through the prophet Jeremiah. At the time of the exile of the southern kingdom going into captivity in Babylon. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. At the time when it is trodden. Yet a little while and the time of her harvest will come. What's he talking about? They're going into captivity. He's not talking about salvation. What's he talking about? Judgment. The harvest has come. I'm going to trample just like the threshing floor. Scattering all that grain. Throwing it up in the air. There's going to be a scattering taking place. There's going to be a judgment coming. Now ultimately, here, God is talking about a judgment coming against Babylon. For what Babylon had done to the nation of Israel. But nonetheless, the picture, harvest equals judgment. Or can equal judgment, especially when used in in these terms. So let's go back. Revelation chapter 14, in verse 16, it says, So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
So I think you have a picture of the... Ultimately, the Bible tells that God the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Scripture tells that all judgment is in the Son. And the Son is going to be a part of that judgment. And then we're given the, the description of the angels doing the work. Look at verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar... The angel who has authority over fire. Again, all of these things are, is the language of judgment. It's all the language of judgment. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for the grapes are ripe. It is time for them to be trampled. So, we have two harvests, right? One that the Son of Man is doing as he swipes his sickle through the earth and the earth is reaped and the second that is done by the angels now there's a lot of discussion about this just like i told you earlier there's discussion about the one who sits on the on the cloud some people think one of the harvests is a harvest to salvation maybe uh um uh, a, a picture of a rapture or god saving his elect and then the other is a picture of god's judgment the, the problem is there's no delineation in the language, okay? So that's the reason why I see judgment both ways. Typically, when God is saving, He doesn't use language of judgment in, in, in saving people from the earth. The language that He uses, the description and symbols that are used are all symbols of judgment. So I think both are describing the same thing. You can probably see most people... When looking at this part of the book of Revelation, I don't know if they're quite divided down the middle, but probably pretty close between what's going on. The end result, though, however, is the same either way. Uh, You have the the reaping of the harvest at the end. Now, when we look at it, there are are, um, this idea of of, uh, the role that the angel takes that comes out of the altar. We had... One come out of the temple, everybody with me? And then one comes from the altar, two different places. Do you remember who's under the altar? You remember from chapter 6? So chapter 6, you have the martyrs, the souls of the martyrs underneath the altar, right? And what are they crying out? How long, O Lord, how long till you'll judge? Till Till you'll take vengeance, right? For... The blood of the martyrs that have been spilled. And if you agree with me, and if you see the things that I've I've tried to show you in Scripture, I think the majority, well, personally, I think all the Christians who are not Jewish are going to die. And I think not all the Jews are going to live either, but there's a select group that God preserves. But when we look at it, there's going to be a lot of of souls under the altar, right? And you remember in chapter 6, the angel comes from the altar... With, a, with, a, with incense, you remember? And he throws something down on the earth. You remember what he throws down on the earth? Fire mingled with blood. And so what do we have here? Very similar picture. The angel comes from the altar. The altar is where the souls of the martyrs uh, are at. And it says um, in, in, uh, in verse 19, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grapes of harvest, of the earth and threw it in the wine press of the wrath of God. So we have an angel coming from the temple and we have an angel from the altar. 
And the angel from the altar, remember the verse before, said he has what? Authority over fire. He has the authority over fire. The angel in chapter 6 threw what down on the earth? Fire mingled with blood. And here, so you have a very similar picture in this judgment. He calls out with a loud voice to the one and says, Put in your sickle. So you have the same thing, same description happening twice. Now keep in mind, maybe for us this seems weird, but for them it's not weird. The four living creatures who span their entire existence around the throne of God. They're always around the throne of God. If you see four living creatures described in the Bible, what you're reading about is the throne of God. Remember the four living creatures? Four faces. Very different part of creation. What do they say all day long? Why do they say it three times? Because there's three people in the Trinity? Is that why? Maybe. But in Jewish reckoning, the more you say something, the more emphatic it becomes. And literally, for a Jewish mind, how many times does Jesus say, um, truly, truly, I say unto you? You remember those times in Scripture where verily, verily, I say unto you? He's, He's building emphasis on what He's about to say. The height of that emphasis was when they repeated something three times. So, maybe the four living creatures in their repetition are just saying the most holy being in all of creation is Yahweh, God most high. Holy, holy, holy. We'll find out when we get there. You know, we can't, I, I don't think I can prove it any more than somebody could disprove it. But the, the concept is definitely in Jewish literature, in Hebrew literature, that this is the, the idea. So repeating something twice, like Jesus did over and over again in his teachings... Jesus didn't just teach one time. You guys know that, right? When we read the Gospels and you read a story that Jesus taught, He didn't just say that once. How long was His ministry? Three years. Does it take you three years to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It don't. Man, so look what good readers you guys are. What does it say in the end of John? At the end of John, does it say, John wrote down everything Jesus ever said or did? What does it say? He said, if I wrote everything Jesus did, we couldn't even fit all the books that would be written in a library. Yeah? Something like that. So the idea, those those things, those teachings, Jesus, the, the language used is He continued to teach. He would continue to teach these concepts and ideals. Why? Because repetition is the mother of learning. No? In school, isn't that how they taught us? They drive us crazy. Don't keep repeating the same thing. How many have thought the same thing on Sunday morning? It says we've been in Hebrews 11 for like 12 weeks or something. But it's over now, so you don't have to feel that way. But the idea, repetition is a mother of learning. I think that's the emphasis here. Again, the harvest is judgment. And I think that is clearly seen when we get to verse 19 and 20. The angel goes in, he draws it through, he gathers the grapes, throws them in the wine press of God, right? And the winepress was trodden outside the city. So, one thing we know for sure is it's not trodden inside the city. Agreed? So we're outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 1,600, uh, roughly 182 miles, uh, give or take. Uh, Roughly, like I said, the distance from Basra to Megiddo. 
So, first part, this angel with the fire. I think this is an answer to the prayers of the, of the martyrs, right? Who said, how long, O Lord, till you are going to... Well, the time has come. It's here. The judgment. Here it comes. Here's the, here's the specific judgment that's going to be uh, unleashed on earth. Um, and then what's the impact of that judgment? Revelation 19 tells us that when Jesus returns, He has a name on His thigh, remember, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. <clears throat> he, uh, he also is wearing something. He's wearing a vesture that's what? You know, dipped in blood. He's got blood on His clothes. Where did that come from? Where's it, where, what's that all about? What's this? It says in Revelation 19.15, From his mouth goes a sharp sword with it to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's from Psalm 2. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So who is stomping the grapes? Jesus is, right? And so if he's stomping the grapes... He's probably going to get some of that on him. When we look at Isaiah 63 is a great section, and, and hopefully this helps tie together a couple of these ideas. In Isaiah 63, Isaiah says, Who is this who comes from Edom? Now, Edom is Jordan today. It's below the Dead Sea. Below the Dead Sea, um, there is a place in Edom called Basra. A place called Basra. He says, Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel. Marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness mighty to save. Who's coming? Jesus. Where does it say he starts? He starts the return in Basra. Why? Because Basra is 182 miles from Armageddon. And if you have all the armies of the world gathered, setting up and getting ready for battle in Israel, for a battle that's supposed to take place in Armageddon, where are those armies going to be staged? Probably somewhere out there in the desert. The Bible seems to indicate somewhere near Basra. So Jesus comes back, and He, and he begins... The harvest, the trampling of the grapes of wrath in Basra. And he's going to start the journey. Now, it won't look like it from a map, but all of that is flowing toward the Dead Sea. It's all flowing toward the Dead Sea from Basra to Megiddo, which will be above north of the Dead Sea and Basra south of the Dead Sea. He says, uh, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Here's the question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like him who treads the winepress? And his response, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was none to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. 
So that great battle, final battle, taking place in the plains of Megiddo, Har-Megeddon. So he's going to come down in Basra, work his way through all the armies of the enemy, walking all the way to Megiddo. Then from Megiddo, he's going to come into a city a little ways from there you're all familiar with, and put his feet on the Mount of Olives. Why does he go to Basra first? He's got to conquer the enemy before he can stand on the Mount of Olives and declare himself the victor. The battle's over. Are we fighting with him? No. Does, he, does God need our help? He don't need our help. He's not going to require our abilities. He, this is one of those things. He's got it. He's like, I got this. Don't you guys worry. Psalm 98.1 says this, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and holy arm have worked salvation for him. I think referring to this same time. How is it that he saves? He says, I save my own right arm, my own right hand. My own power is able to do it. Psalm 98.9 Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So we have the picture of the battle of Armageddon, the blood flowing to the horse's bridle. In Revelation 19 you get a little more picture where God sends all the carrion birds to go to Megiddo because they're going to be able to flesh they're going to be able to feed on the flesh of men, kings, great men, men of renown in the the valley of Megiddo. Remember I told you there's there's two dinners you can get invited to. The marriage supper of the lamb where we get to sit around and celebrate an eternity with Christ or the feast of the great God. But the feast of the great God, you are the main course. The marriage supper of the Lamb, we're eating something else. The feast of the great God is the feast for the birds, eating the flesh of men who have rebelled against God Almighty. So what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 14 is that picture of God's judgment. The time has come. Chapter 15, what are we going to see? The opening of the bowls of wrath. Bowls of wrath are going to be poured out. It, wherein the wrath of God is made complete. The wrath of God isn't over. It started three and a half years earlier. It's going to go three and a half years longer. But it's not going to be complete until all those bowls have been poured out. Until they have all been poured out, then God's judgment will be complete. The sun will come, and then He will set up His kingdom, and the long-awaited King will return. And we live happily ever after. Hopefully, that helps you see a little bit about what's going on. Revelation chapter 14, chapter 15 next week. If you've got questions, I'll be around. Feel free to come up and uh, bust my chops over them, and we'll work our way through it. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.